Thoth Hermes podcast. Welcome to the world of the Western esoteric tradition. Hello, friends and listeners. Welcome back to a new episode of the Thoth Hermes podcast. And yes, this is season eight, episode number three. And three, well, we are in the middle of sacred geometry. So maybe that is why episode three is also the third appearance of somebody very special. Uh, John Michael Greer is back to the Thought Hermes podcast. You seemed to really enjoy the two first appearances of his, given by the numbers of downloads he made. And well, no surprise, because it's always great to talk to him. So welcome to that episode. Today is uh, March the 13th in 2022. And my name is Rudolf. I am your host here at the Thought Hermes podcast and also its creator, soon approaching its fifth anniversary and uh, therefore 20th of april it'll be our fifth anniversary and there are one or two nice surprises for that for that date to mark that moment um, well i'm happy about it you know five years that's something who would have thought and would have thought that each week we get more and more downloads no really thank you so much you are really great out there listening to this show and accompanying me and thanks to all of you who are supporting the show again to more supporters this week thank you and yes i know you hate it when i repeat it every week but i have to i have to because that's the way we support this show we sustain this show uh, we need more of your support to be honest um because well uh, things are not getting cheaper and uh, there are some things technically that need to be replaced soon etc so please um think of becoming a patron like others before you did and go to the patreon website and look for the thothering podcast or much easier go to thoughthermes.com t-h-o-t-h-e-r-m-e-s.com there you find all you need a the patreon button thank you or if you prefer the donation button that's also possible but you also find all the episodes almost 120 by now with all the show notes you should really go and see the show notes more um, many of you do but there are still many who don't and it's a pity because there's always a lot of nice information so go on the website Look him up and especially look also up the old episodes because there are some jewels in there and many, many discoveries. So please go back and look a bit back at our history, which will be soon five years old. But it's not historical. It's become a source of really knowledge, I believe. So that's that's what I like about um, going back to old episodes. I do it myself, actually, from time to time because it's so interesting to see. Also how this podcast has developed right so and uh well uh, i welcome everyone who is here for the first time there must be some of you among because as i said every week we have nice 
a nice little increase in numbers, listener numbers, and that's really, really great. Thank you for that. Um, wonderful that you come here and do that for us. While you are at the website, um, why don't you drop me a line who you are, why you come to this show, what you like hearing, what you like about the show. Maybe there are things you don't like about the show. Let me know as well. And um, once again, we've had a few weeks where I played music basically only from listeners, music composed by you and written or performed. And uh, that's really great because there's a lot, a lot of occultists, of people interested in the occult and the Western esoteric tradition who actually do music. You also use music as a kind of magic, if I may say that. Um, and um, yes, it would be interesting, interesting to hear again more of that. Um, uh, so please come back again to me, or even if those who have been already on the show want to present other tracks, new tracks or supplementary tracks, open to everything. Okay, yes, but because you know, we play music always in this show. And well, we are approaching the first piece of music now. And I must say before I say what it will be, it is... A kind of special music here. Maybe it's also John John Michael Greer who inspires me musically because we always had a little chat about music as well. We both love Richard Wagner and I played Wagner on his first appearance here. And no, it's not Wagner today. It's um but it's classical music. All three pieces are classical music, and they are a bit also, well, partly inspired by the interview, of course, and partly inspired by what's going on in the world, I must say. Um of course, this is something that is difficult to understand or difficult to, well, not it's impossible to accept what is going on out there in the world. And um, it's a real pity that in 2022, mankind has not developed any further. It looks like we are all thrown back by hundreds of years again um, in our human behavior. And it's really, really, really sad. So to, how should I say that? It's not to mark that, what I just said, no, but for God's sake, maybe to, to just remember, to remind that we are all one world and especially that hermeticism and um, occultism in general should also, and mostly is marking exactly that, showing that there's, only one humankind and that we all belong together. Um, I have chosen especially the first the first piece of music. It's a music piece that you all probably know. We've heard it lots and lots in 2001 in September after September 11 to be honest. But um, it's much older of course. It's uh, well it's it's the famous uh, piece by Samuel Barber, you will all recognize, Adagio for Strings, but it's not the Adagio for Strings as we know it. It has been transcribed into an Agnus Dei, which is a, a, a Latin liturgical Christian text, but that's also not the point. Um, the point is that this is um, a very, very well-known, sad and mourning piece of music for uh, written by an American composer. Samuel Barber, performed by a Slovenian, so Euro Southern European Slavic chorus, the Slovenian Philharmonic Chorus, in a very beautiful way, which sounds almost like from one of the Orthodox Church's songs. And to me, it's a kind of symbol of how 
the worlds of, for example, in that case, the Orthodox Church, I'm talking about, the, in that case, the Orthodox Church in general, um, and the Western musical tradition, Samuel Barber, come together and in that beautiful performance, which is very special, it's very different from what we have even heard from the usual choral performances of that piece. Um, I picked it as a symbol, um, which was hopefully going to be understood. I'd like to, if you don't like the music, well, jump. There is a chapter mark uh, always after the music as well. So um, you don't have to listen to it. But if you do, um, and there are three musical pieces, which are all three thoughtful and a bit longer than usual. This one is around seven minutes 45 the upcoming one and even my intro is already longer so this is going to be a long show sorry about that there will be some people again writing well the interview starts at dot 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 well okay too bad um but i tell you something yes it's a long intro i'm sorry i'm very proud because we have a 78 percent on the podcast downloads listen 78% of those who download this show listen to more than 75% of it. And that is great. It's, an, it's called impactful download. 78% of impactful downloads. That's huge. Honestly, that's huge. And that's you out there, you the audience. And I'm very grateful for that. Thank you. Okay, but enough chatting now. Let's get serious and we're going to listen to Samuel Barber's Adagio, but sung as an Agnus Dei by the Slovenian Philharmonic Chorus. And it's a thought in the peace of the world and that we should all unite in peace and thought about those who suffer from the contrary.
Samuel Barber's Adagio for Strings in a choral version as an Agnus Dei sung by the Slovenian Philharmonic Chorus as some uniting idea about peace in the world, this mourning song about uh, the sadness of war and killing. Thoughtful idea to perform it in that way. And I hope you enjoyed it as well. I did a lot of talking for the intro today and uh, also the interview is a couple of minutes longer and also all three other musical pieces are a bit longer here today. I'm in the Wagnerian moment at the moment. No, seriously. Um, so I thought maybe today uh, I will not read you an excerpt from one of the books that we're discussing, but I will of course tell you what will be the topic and the main topics of this talk. You remember Maybe uh, uh, you do. Last time I spoke to John Michael Greer in the fall, and the initial idea back then was to talk about sacred geometry. And uh, when we approached the date of our interview, uh, the book on sacred geometry that was planned to be out by them, well, it wasn't. And um, well, then we used the time because when you have John for an interview, you don't give away the date because it's so great to talk to. Um, so I thought, well, we'll talk about something else. And today, well, now one of the two topics we are going to talk is sacred geometry in the context of his new book that appeared uh, about a month ago, finally. Um, well, you know, it's all about paper and transportation and warehouses at the moment all over the world with, with the poor publishing houses, but they all are doing a great job and coming together. So um, his English publisher managed to not only reissue his Sacred Geometry card deck, which is quite amazing, but also his new book, which actually is the start, you will learn that in the interview, of a whole series of a kind of course on magic. Um, John Michael Greer is telling us more about that. So Sacred Geometry is a part of the interview, but in the first part we are talking about Pluto. No, not the dog from the Walt Disney uh, Disney comic. Uh, I always liked him when I was a kid. No, but of course about planet Pluto and its influence on uh, astrology. And um, I find it highly interesting. I'm not a very deeply knowledgeable astrologer. Of course, astrology, as I say in the interview, is a tool for astrometricists and all of us who are in ceremonial magic. But um, it's not, uh, to me, something I'm easily working with. Um, we, so, uh, uh, but it, it was extremely interesting to hear what um, uh, John Michael had to say, what happened when Pluto appeared and when he, well, appeared, when he was found and made a planet and then suddenly he was no longer, it was no longer a planet. So... Really fascinating stuff, and we are going to talk at length about that as well. So Pluto is the main topic of this upcoming interview, and after that we are going to talk about sacred geometry. But why I'm at all saying that, you should just listen to the interview now. Okay, so let's not make that intro longer. Uh, as promised, let's jump right into the interview, and I can only tell you as much that after, well, 35-ish minutes, 34, 35 minutes, We'll be back with music, music on Pluto, by the way. So don't miss that. Don't jump the music. <laughs> no, you do what you want, of course. Right. So let's go and beat John Michael Greer. Mm -hmm. 
Here comes the interview. It is not only for me, I'm sure, but for a whole audience who are listening in here today, an enormous pleasure to have somebody back here on the Thought Hermes podcast who, well, it's not a surprise, but who made a blast on his two first appearances here with me on the Thought Hermes podcast. And I'm very, very happy to welcome back John Michael Greer on Thought Hermes. Hello, John Michael. How are you today? Hello. Thank you very much for having me back on again. I'm doing pretty well today. Well, it's it's a pleasure to have you. And actually, when we spoke here last time, we already then back then wanted to talk about one of the two topics that we deal with today here. Mm -hmm. um, but remember, um, as the time is at the moment, paper was rare, transportation was bad. Um, it still is somehow. And um, <laughs> um, so the books that we were going to talk about had not yet been published. Um, and I'm talking about Sacred Geometry, the Sacred Geometry Oracle, and the other book called The Way of the Golden Section, a Manual of Occult Training. And mm -hmm. is it going to be one of our topics here today, John Michael, if, you, if you're mm -hmm. happy with that? I'm good um, with that. But before that, I would like to talk about a brand new book that's just about to make it to the mail, um, which is called The uh, which is which is about well astrology actually um it's called the twilight of pluto and i wonder uh john michael uh is this one of your rare books on astrology as such or is astrology as a main topic of a book something that you have already done frequently well it's not something that i've done before but when I was when I was a good deal younger and I was first getting into occultism, I, I did some reading in astrology and got a sense of what was out there and said, you know, it's time. It'll be time for me to um, to, to get into this to really study astrology when I'm older. Well, that that did in fact arrive, of course, as it does for most of us. Yeah. And <clears throat> so, what would it be about uh, ten, twelve years ago? I started seriously reading in astrology. Of course, I was writing lots of other things by by that time. Um, the Twilight of Pluto is my first book on astrological subjects. It's not going to be my last. I have two others in preparation right now. And I do a lot of astrology at this point. I do particularly political astrology. Mm -hmm. But um, but that's, that's a topic that, that's something that obviously I needed to get up to speed on. I needed to study and learn and practice before I had anything to say about the subject. So expect, expect more things along an astrological line from me in the future. That's exciting. I, I wonder why you just said something that, well, who am I to say that? But it's it also appeals to me. And I, but I have quite a few friends who say similar things. And it seemed to me that you seemed to be saying the same thing. It's some astrology sometimes is hard when you are a young occultist, and it becomes mm -hmm. more. Um, you get more acquainted with it later on. Why do you think is that? Oh, in my case, it was simply, um, I, I, you know, I was young. I was, I was really interested in ceremonial magic. I wanted mm. to, you know, break out the wand and the robes and this kind of stuff. I was caught up in the romance of the thing. And astrology is also hugely complex. It's much more complex than any other Western system of divination by a couple of orders of magnitude. Mm -hmm. And so I was simply looking at the scale of the material that I would have to master in order to get a good working understanding of astrology uh, compared. I mean, tarot, geomancy, some of the other divination methods I've used, those are easy. 
you know, you study a couple of books, you start practicing regularly, you learn from your mistakes as well as your successes, mm-hmm. and in a couple of years, you're good at it. That's fine. Um, I mean, you can go further. You can do. Um, you can get very deeply into it. There are some people who put put a lifetime into the tarot, for example, and, and some other oracles. But you can reach a level of basic competence fairly readily. Astrology yeah. is quite another matter. Astrology is gargantuan. <laughs> and, <laughs> and it's just it, it it's it it is it has been it has taken me as much time as much effort as much um as much study to get a good working knowledge of astrology as it took for me to get a good working knowledge of ceremonial magic it, right. on that same scale right. and so i figured in my case it was partly you know it's it's more romantic to be you know brandishing a wand and bellowing words of power and this kind of stuff than uh, sitting on a couch calculating horoscopes. Um, so the romance, you know, appeals to the young, but also is simply a matter of saying, okay, one of these at a time, please. Yeah, 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 yeah. And and also, uh, there are so many number of systems in astrology, it seems, mm-hmm. um, as in ceremonial magic, you're right to say. Oh, yeah. But but um, um, how how do you find out which one appeals or appeals or is the right one for you in in the case of astrology? Well, that that's actually there's actually a fairly simple way to do. Well, I won't say it's simple, but it's simpler than than it's it's fairly straightforward. It just takes a lot of work. Mm-hmm. You take your own horoscope. You take your birth time and so on. You calculate the positions of the stars and um, the house cusps using any given system you care to name and then study it. How well does it fit? And in my case, that took me back to what I suppose you could call classic astrology, not ancient or Greek or medieval or Renaissance, but the kind of thing that was being practiced in the 19th and early 20th centuries. Right. Um, the so kind of not Alan, the seven planets, but the, the, the bigger the bigger scale, right? Oh, yeah. No, I, mm-hmm. I find, I, I, as, as, we'll, as we'll discuss in a bit, I find Nep- uh, Uranus and Neptune very important in mm-hmm. in horoscopic studies um pluto that's another matter and yes we will get to that yes. but so alan leo llewellyn george um there's a lot of figures from that period who wrote really first rate um books on astrology and not just the kind of hey let's wallow in psychological um you know self-referential um navel gazing that, that too often makes up so much of astro- astrological writing these days but let's predict things let's find out what's going to happen that's what interests me mm-hmm. i mean if i want to engage in navel gazing i can start my navel without too much difficulty um, <laughs> if i want to do psychology I, i've got a fair collection of the book of, of carl jung's books okay mm-hmm. i study divination and i study astrology because i want to know what's going to happen i want to have an eye toward prediction right and a lot of the astrology that we've had since about the mid-20th century, since um, Mark Edmund Jones and Dane Trudiar and so on, since their method really took over from everything else, has avoided prediction at all costs. It's just, mm-hmm. no, no, let's just talk about your psyche. I, you know, that's fine. I can talk about my psyche. That's not what I'm doing astrology for. <laughs> <laughs> I want to be able to look at a chart and say, oh, that's what kind of stupidity the politicians are going to get up to. You know, yeah, that's political yeah, astrology. Yeah. Uh, I see what you mean. Absolutely. We are in the middle of that at the moment, actually. <laughs> for example. <laughs> but, um, but now you just mentioned Neptune and and Uranus and and mm-hmm. of course Pluto, which gives the title to your new book. And mm-hmm. um, now, 
of course, you talk about that situation where Pluto became a planet at some point, not too far back in history, uh, because it was kind of discovered. And then suddenly uh, in Prague, pe some people met. And in mm -hmm. 2006, I believe it was, suddenly they mm -hmm. declared, well, Pluto is no longer a planet, right? Um, well... Yeah. yeah, it's a little more complicated than that. Sure. We'll get to yeah. that in a moment. Yeah, yeah. Well, do get to it. Do get to it, please. Yes, please. Okay. Well, the thing, the thing is, Pluto was discovered in 1930. There was all this hullabaloo. People have been searching for it for 30 years. They spotted it, and everyone thought, oh, here is this new planet. It's, like, it's about the size of Earth. It's a mm -hmm. significant presence in the solar system. And then as measurements came in and people did observation, it became obvious that Pluto was a lot smaller than it looked at first, mm. much smaller. And in fact, the original calculations had assumed that it was like the size of Neptune, All but right. it turned out that was wrong and it got smaller and smaller. In, somewhere in the early 1980s, a bunch of scientists wrote a, a funny paper. There is such a thing as scientific humor, and this was a good example. <laughs> they, they were tracking the rate at which Pluto had diminished over the years, and they had this little graph showing that by such and such date, it will cease to exist. <laughs> now, as funny. it turns out, Pluto is tiny. Hmm. Pluto is one-seventh the size of our moon. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. Many asteroids are bigger than Pluto, and so many, many moons are bigger than Pluto, um, not sure. just ours. Um, you know, there's yeah. lots of – it's a tiny little body that just happened to drift by. Mm -hmm. And so what happened in, in 2006 when the, when, the when the International Astronomical Union met at Prague is that they looked at this whole thing and said, come on, let's be real. This is not a planet. This is not big enough. It does not have the kind of gravitational effects. It doesn't mm -hmm. fit the definition of what a planet is. Yeah, and even, so, in, even in the shape of it circulating among the sun is very different. Yeah, exactly. From exactly. Most it, of has, Earth, right? it has mm. this weird oblique or, orbit. Mm -hmm. It doesn't fit in with the with Bode's law, the, which which governs the spacing of all the other planets. It's mm -hmm. just it's not. It's something else. And so they, they couldn't, couldn't, since obviously it's not part of the asteroid belt, and it is not, it, it is not the same as most asteroids. It, it is large enough to be, to be a sphere. Right. Okay. So right. they created the category of dwarf planet. And when they did that, they also assigned Ceres to that, um, mm -hmm. the, the, the quote, what, what had been the, quote, largest of the asteroids, unquote. Right. And I think what's the one, Eris has been assigned to the same category yeah, now, and Eris, I think they're, exactly. they're discussing mm -hmm. a couple of others. Mm -hmm. And so it was, it, was smart, it was a sensible move based on the development of, of astronomical science. They knew, okay, there, we need to recognize this is not a planet. This is a smaller body, but it's bigger than an asteroid. Right. Now I'm going to ask you a, maybe a strange question, but um, why is the astronomical scientific status of, uh, of a celestial body important for the astrologer you could say well you know it's like it's like a fault in california it's there you know about it or you don't so the earthquake <laughs> will happen so why mm -hmm. is that recognition or the way it's being received by the scientific community mm -hmm. so important for the astrologer oh basically remember that everything that happens on earth echoes and reflects events in the heavens Mm -hmm. And so when a planet is discovered, obviously the planet existed all along. So, you sure. know, a bunch of, a bunch of uh, you know, planetary spirits didn't suddenly cobble together um, Uranus <laughs> in the sky, you know, exactly. the week before Herschel discovered it. Mm -hmm. um, it was there all along, but its influence did not have the same kind of power. 
And you can see this in history. We'll get to that in a moment. When it was discovered, all of a sudden it's a known thing. It emerges from what we might as well call the celestial unconscious into celestial consciousness, into human consciousness. We become aware of this new influence. And then it begins to affect us in a different way. This is one of the things that my book tries to tries to discuss. Exactly. The way that the discovery of a planet involves the obvious word constellating a new body, a new set of influences, a new body of influence in human collective life. Mm-hmm. You can see this especially well with the cases of Uranus and Neptune. Um, Uranus showed up. And we had the age of revolutions. Uranus is the revolutionary planet. Mm-hmm. Uh, Uranus showed up and electricity. Uranus is the planet of electricity. Mm-hmm. And so on and so on and so on. There's lots of other examples. Uranus is, the, among other things, um, Uranus is the planet of alternative sexualities. It was after its discovery that um, the simple fact that some people had same-sex relationships suddenly transformed from, yeah, some people have same-sex relationships to there are this class of people who we now call gay or lesbian mm-hmm. who are different. That's the Uranian principle, difference. Countercultures emerged and so on and so on and so on. Mm-hmm. Once the Uranian influence cut in, all of these things constellated in human society and in the human psyche. Your, uh, Neptune is exactly the same way. Neptune is the planet of fantasy. It's the planet of, of delusion and dream. It's, you know, there, there's all these things that correspond to it. It's the planet of socialism. Um, right. And when it was discovered, click over the next, just over the next very few years, it was discovered in 1846, 1848, you have the communist manifesto and the, mm-hmm. and all these very weird, shapeless, aimless revolutions in Europe, most of which accomplished very little, but is very Neptunian, very vague and sort of undirected and dreamlike. Yeah. Um, you had the rise of that, the invention of fantasy fiction. You had the rediscovery of myth and legend, so on and so forth. Mm-hmm. In exactly the same way, the discovery of Pluto constellated certain things, but because, again, that was a change in scientific opinion. Scientists went, oh, there's another planet human culture went, oh, there's another planet. Now we have Pluto. In it, now we have scientists looking at the situation going, oh, it's not a planet. <laughs> and it's a tiny little lump of stuff that mm-hmm. doesn't actually. And correspondingly, various things that had been part of the Plutonian influence suddenly went on a hard downturn. Right. Very interesting. Very interesting. Um, so... That is also the reason uh, I would I would suspect that you rather go for the classic astrology, not in the in the traditional old way with the seven planets, but with by including Uranus, Neptune, etc., because it is adapted to our age, our time, and what in which you mm-hmm. personally live in, right? Yes. Well, it's partly that. It's partly also that it was the that 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 was the astrology that was used by many of the cult traditions that I study most intensely. Yes, so there's a exactly. lot of symbolic connections and so on. Mm-hmm. But yeah, the thing is, Pluto did not vanish. I mean, the scientists in Prague did not aim a, a death ray at Pluto and blow it out of existence. Mm-hmm. It's still there. It's a minor influence. Ceres right. is another minor influence. And one of the things I talk about in my book is that if you recognize that Ceres, it's not a planet, but it's not just background. If yeah. it's strongly placed in your chart, 
it can have a significant influence on your life. I, I mentioned the case of someone because Sirius is, among other things, the the the, the dwarf planet of 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 nourishing, of nutrition. Of, um, of of being nourished and being comforted, also the opposites of those when it's badly aspected. And I mentioned the, the chart of someone, a, a natal chart I worked with, somebody who had um, lifelong problems with nurturing and with, and with food issues and so on. And you can see that right in the chart as soon as you recognize the series is thus placed. Um, I've had a conversation recently with somebody else who has Pluto very strongly placed in their natal chart. It continues to have a strong effect. Whereas Pluto in my natal chart is just kind of there. And I went through a major, a whole series of major transits across my natal Pluto a few years, it was about half a dozen years ago. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the kind of thing that according to the sort of um, the conventional wisdom should have caused my life to blow sky high. And it was a dud. Nothing much happened. <laughs> Okay. And I've talked to many other people who've had the same experience, and that was that was actually the the seed of the whole thing. Hold it! What happened to the nervous breakdown? What happened to the complete collapse of my life? What happened to the upsurge of things from the subconscious? Why am I just sitting here going, "Well, that's it. that didn't happen, did it?" So right. I did some research, and things followed. Interesting. I was fascinated by that chapter about Sirius because. Um, mm-hmm. Honestly, it, it was the first time I'd I'd really dealt with with that uh, well, not planet, but that uh, dwarf planet. The dwarf planet, yeah. Uh, and uh, its relationship to romanticism, as you draw it up there, mm-hmm. I think it's a fascinating, a fascinating uh, story. Maybe you can just give us a little hint uh, on that. Oh yeah, yeah. The, the the short form is that when Sirius was first discovered, she was thought to be a planet. Um, mm-hmm. And discovered in, what, 1800, I think it was, 1800, 1801. Something like that, yeah. Now, one of the things that I, I have noticed in my study of these things is that the effect of a new planet takes about 30 years to come on before the discovery. Very often, that's how long people take to find it, in the case of mm-hmm. Pluto, for example. Mm-hmm. But so you have this sort of 30-year, one Saturn cycle lag time. And starting about 30 years before um, Sirius was discovered, you start having the first stories of romanticism. You have Goethe's earliest works. You have the beginnings of the romantic current in painting and poetry and so on. Mm -hmm. And away we go. And we have romantic nationalism. We have romantic music. We have this whole world of romanticism. And then by 1850, Sirius had completed the same cycle as Pluto. And everyone was looking and saying, this is not a planet. This is a little bitty body. And there are hundreds of others, maybe more than that. The asteroids were named. It's no, there wasn't an international astronomical union to, to do the formal thing, but everyone more or less recognized mm-hmm. this is not a planet. And romanticism just kind of faded out. You, I mean, you still have echoes of it in various places. But, I mean, the, the example, the, the classic example, the example that I use as the touchstone is Goethe's The Sorrows of Young Werther. Yeah, sure. Which is a Which central work. Decent international work. bestseller. Yeah. It yeah. W- people were crazy about it. It made, well, what's the thing? Twilight. It made that look like a flop. <laughs> and now, try reading it. I yeah. have yet to meet anyone who has read The Sorrows of Young Werther, whose response wasn't either hysterical laughter or, give me a break. Yeah, yeah. It, I, it, I rather the has, latter one. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah, yeah. I, I found it very funny. I find it extremely funny, but then I, I, have a, I have a warped sense of humor. Uh, 
<laughs> but yeah, and it was not the reaction the Goethe was after. And yet here we go. You know, here's this classic work which can no longer be understood because the current that had set it in motion mm-hmm. is gone. Now I expect this same thing to happen over the decades ahead with um, the you know the important works of the Plutonian era. All of these all of these novels where people are they're obsessed with sex and drugs. William Burroughs. William Burroughs is a great writer. He's a totally Plutonian writer. My Mm -hmm. guess is a hundred years from now, people will try reading him and go, why? Mm -hmm. Because Mm -hmm. he, you know, he was a creature of the Plutonian era and that's gone. Yeah. So so when you say that it starts, the influence starts about 30 years before uh, Mm -hmm. that planet is discovered, will that also last, for example, about those 30 years beyond its degradation in the case of Pluto, for example? Mm -hmm. That's certainly what happened with Ceres, Mm -hmm. because Ceres was downgraded around 1850 and Romanticism had finally finished winding up about 1880. In the same way, um, the the unplanet Vulcan which um, was yeah. a, an accidental product of, of um, pre-relativistic physics mm-hmm. and um, was believed in by a fair number of astrologers. It had that same 30-year tail. So, yeah, my, my, working, my working assumption here is that um, Pluto, having, having, been, having you know, fallen from planetary status in, 20, in 2006, mm-hmm. uh, about t- by about 2036, the entire Plutonian kit and caboodle will have wrapped up and gone away. Right. I find it very funny when he, I didn't know that that Pluto, the dog in Mickey Mouse was named, uh, well, of course, one planet, year yeah. after its discovery, but after <laughs> it was all, all, all kids favorite, at least by at my time. Uh, oh, yeah. I, I loved him most in the whole in the whole world. <laughs> um, but what, but what, what is the what is the what is the Plutonian um, typical thing that is happening and is now coming to its end. How would you describe it in, the, in, in a few words? The essence of Pluto is opposition to cosmos. The, the concept of cosmos, the idea that, that we find in the earliest levels of Greek philosophy, the universe is a harmonious whole. Mm-hmm. Pluto is the rejection of that. Pluto yeah. is the breaker of balance, the breaker of unity. Um, everything Plutonian is a breaking, a division, a separation, and isolation. So, it was, so with Pluto, we had nuclear power, the breaking of the atom. We had psychoanalysis, the breaking of the mind into conscious and subconscious halves. We had not Marxism as, a, as, in, as in its Newtonian, or as try that again, its um, Neptunian manifestation. Mm-hmm. Well, that was a Freudian slip. Um, <laughs> but not, not, not Neptune in its, in its Neptunian form as, as an idealistic vision of a better world, but um, Marxism as, um, in its Plutonian form as Leninism. As Leninism and Stalinism, revo- yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, Leninism yeah, Stalinism, yeah. the revolutionary, which split the world in half. Um, sure. You have the modern, the modern current in art, which splits the cultural world in half between the minority that can stand it and the rest of us who can't. Mm-hmm. It's mm-hmm. always a rejection of unity. Space travel is the ultimate example. We're going to leave the Earth behind and go live, you know, in in a bunch of clanking mechanical habitats in space. Mm-hmm. Um, well, we're not, but, no, but we're not, we get uh, that. Yes. But so, yeah, it's always about the shattering of unity. And so as as Pluto winds down, we've already seen nuclear power has become um, basically a dud, not because it can't be done, but because it's unaffordable. 
It's a, it's, yeah. a, it's an overpriced white elephant. Absolutely. Space travel is the same way. We all know what happened to to Marxism and Leninism. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. The only place the only place that survives nowadays is on university campuses, um, yeah. and which is a very Neptunian thing to happen. It's it's returning <laughs> to its Neptunian roots, yeah. and and so on. As psychoanalysis, psychoanalysis. I mean, most people, most. Um, Psychologists these days consider Freudian psychoanalysis to have failed. It's an in, it's an ineffective treatment modality. Yes, in the best um, way, it has been a necessity to break something up, but it's not the solution, yeah. right? Yeah. Now, no, once right. it once it once it did its job by getting people out of that 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 wedged in state mm-hmm. of of sexual repression, it, it you know it's not really useful. Jung, of course, did the smart thing and let from Pluto to Neptune into the realms of the collective unconscious, into fantasy and myth. And so my guess is Jungian psychology is going to be around for a long time, but it's probably not going to be treated as therapy in the the post-Plutonian future. It's going to become, you know, kind of a branch of esoteric thought. So the post-Plutonian future is more holistic again, is that that very much so? Yeah, Mm. a return return to the idea of unity and and a return from the idea that, you know, things are made to be broken. That's kind of the Pluto spirit. Exactly, exactly. Well, fascinating. I'm afraid we should now move on. Well, I'm afraid I'm looking forward to moving on to another topic. But and you just mm-hmm. said two things which reminded me so much of that John Michael Greer when I discovered your work ages ago, which was mainly through through your well, I don't know if you like the word, but your more activist books, right? Like mm-hmm. the, uh, how would America look like in two hundred years or in hundred years? <laughs> yes, dark and, uh, dark age America, dark age like America, that, yeah. all that mm-hmm. exactly, and which really made me discover. And I loved those uh, those books just as much as the ones I do now. But um, so when you talk about Pluto in that book we just talked about now, when we go mm-hmm. to the sacred geometry books, which mm-hmm. have a str- strongly been influenced, uh, I may say as much in advance, by your druidry times, by your Celtic mm-hmm. occupations, um, is, <laughs> has the, this activism of you... Um, become more important also in your occult works lately or is this just an impression that i have um the 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 act the activist the material on the future of industrial society the discussions of politics and economics that is that is of interest to me that's of substantial interest to me partly it has a very strong interplay with astrology for obvious mm-hmm. reasons. Sure. Anytime you're dealing with the future, you're dealing with, with the texture of time, and that's yeah. what astrology studies. Yeah. And my, of course, my, my major interest in astrology is political and economic astrology. Mm-hmm. And so that just feeds right into my political economic interests. Yeah. Most of my work on esoteric topics um, has, been, has touched on that peripherally at most. And mm-hmm. that's likely to continue. Um, for example, the sacred geometry oracle doesn't have much to say about um, no, in that's the future right. of industrial society. That's right. that's um, right. And the, yeah. the way of the golden section, I don't think even mentions it. But mm-hmm. all, of, all of this actually, all of this can be seen in terms of the transition to the post-Plutonian world. Because on the one hand, our political and economic systems are going to have to return to a state of balance with the ecosystem. We cannot do that Plutonian thing and break the unity of the ecosystem so we can exploit it. Yes. We figured out that that's a little problematic. 
Mm-hmm. But so so that's that's how that kind of feeds into the sort of what you call the my activist works. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, one of the basic requirements for human life in harmony with cosmos is and is ways of looking at the world, ways of thinking about the world that allow us to understand the world as a unity in which we have a place. And sacred geometry and its related sciences are very important um, tools in that direction. They have been used for thousands of years in the Western world and elsewhere as a way to understand the unity in which we all participate. And so it's very timely. These things should be should be attracting interest now. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, sacred geometry is, uh, has been a topic of personally of mine, which I have, mm-hmm. um, well, for 20, 30 years, I think I have been mm-hmm. into that myself. Um, so, but do you, can you, I don't know if this is possible, but is there a possibility to say where did sacred geometry in human history start to be present, oh, yeah. start to be present in the culture of, of mankind? Oh, good heavens, yes. Um, well, the, the thing to keep in mind is the word history. Obviously, we don't know what people were doing before written records began. Um, we know that there were substantial, um, ge- there's a substantial body of geometrical knowledge in ancient Egypt. Um, all you have to do is look at their architecture. Exactly. <laughs> and, yeah. and, if, and in fact, we have some papyri that, that give some of their geometrical material. Um, we don't have any sense of what kind of philosophy they connected to it, but it's almost certain that they did. Um, as the first figure we know of who like went to Egypt and came home with stuff was Pythagoras. And he came home with this full, fully developed system of, of geometrical thinking and mathematical thinking that was profoundly rooted in philosophy and spirituality. Mm-hmm. He got it in Egypt. So we, we've got, we, you know, it's, it's a safe assumption that the, the oral teachings, of course, which don't survive very well astron- you know, inter- archaeologically, mm-hmm. um, the oral teachings that he received there put in the theoretical dimension, the spiritual dimension, the meditative dimension for which his his work and the tradition he set in motion have been famous ever since. Pythagoras is your man if you want to know the, the point at which sacred geometry arrives in the Western world. Right. Um, we all know about the Pythagorean theorem. Everybody's heard about that. Many people do not realize that Pythagoras was not primarily a mathematician. He was a mystic. Yeah, he, he taught reincarnation. He taught all of this complicated mystical symbolism and teaching and traditions and meditative practice and all this kind of stuff. That was the main thing. And geometry, along with arithmetic, music, and astronomy or astrology, they weren't separate in those days. Um, those were the four branches of his that he taught people to use as, as vehicles for spiritual contemplation. So he's your man where, you know, when he stepped off the boat in Cortona in what's now Southern Italy, um, what, somewhere in the, somewhere in the sixth century and, um, founded his school. That's where, that's where the, in the Western world, the traditions of sacred geometry come from. Um, further east, it gets more complicated. Um, you'd have to ask someone with a much deeper knowledge of the intellectual history of India. Mm-hmm. Um, to get an idea of where things were, where things were moving there, but, um, but do we at least have an idea how the knowledge of the East, so especially India, transited over to to the West? Oh, Because okay. I think Pythagoras, it is said that he was also influenced heavily by by that Eastern by that Eastern school. Oh, yeah. right? Well, the thing is, the thing is, um, th- one of the things that gets forgotten is that the Indian Ocean and the and various travel routes 
connecting. The, 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 there was a lot of trade between the, the Eastern Mediterranean and India going back a very, very long time. There were civilizations in the middle, you know, and they, they all tried, sort of traded back and forth. Yeah. Um, opening up the Silk Route to China was a more complicated process because you had this little thing called the Himalayas to get, to get by. <laughs> <laughs> and you know, the Gobi Desert and the Taklamakan and so on. It was a little rough. But getting from um, getting, getting from, say, Greece to India was not actually that difficult. You have right. to, you, you know, you, you need to talk to the Persians. They were kind of in the way. Mm-hmm. And, but, the, you know, if you're willing, to, they, they like to trade, too. Yeah. And, so, <laughs> and so it was it was really no trouble. And so, uh, you know, by by fairly early on, you have evidence of trade trickling one way or the other. And where trade goes, ideas follow. Right. So by this, this wasn't in Pythagoras' time, but by like the second century BC, um, it's, it, it has apparently been documented. There were Buddhist missionaries in Alexandria in Italy. Yeah, exactly. Who ended up having a, yeah, who had a significant influence on the thinking of the time. And Alexander the Great, of course, he also reached oh, yeah, India at some point that he said that he has brought also some oh, yeah. people with him when he left again. Right? <laughs> Just a few, yeah. And of course, after... And after he after he um, was there, there's this whole band of kingdoms in what's now Pakistan and Afghanistan and mm-hmm. uh, and what would be Western Tibet and so on. These sort of mountain kingdoms that ended up with this amazing blend of Greek and Hindu artistic styles and cultures. Yes. Yes. And so, yeah, so you have these, and of course, by then the Silk Road was cutting in, so there was money to be had because everyone wanted silk. Yeah. Everyone, you know, in, in the Roman Empire adored silk, and the Chinese were perfectly willing to sell it. So you had these kingdoms on the way that could um, provide um, necessary accommodation to travelers and, and merchants and so on. They profited mightily. So you, they, so there was this boiling cultural continuities connecting all of these old, these old Eurasian civilizations. They weren't just off there all by themselves, which is why um, Joseph Needham argued at one point that uh, the Emerald Tablet of Hermes Trismegistus makes most sense if you assume that the original was, was started out as Chinese. Well, that's interesting. That 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 I haven't heard yet. Okay, why it's, why do you think that 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 would be the case? Well, he he argued that the the concepts in the Emerald Tablet, which you find all over alchemy later. Yeah. Obviously, people everyone everyone knew the Emerald Tablet, mm-hmm. um, but centuries beforehand, when those concepts were not to be found in in uh, Greek thought, mm. they were already very much part of Chinese alchemy. And so Needham's theory, I don't know if he's right or not, but Needham's theory was that alchemy was originally Chinese and that it was one of the things that sort of spread westward, um, starting up. And of course, we have we have alchemy in India, Rasayana, and we have alchemy in the in the classical um, in the classical world, especially in Alexandria. And that all of this was was ultimately an influence that got its start in China. Again, I don't know if he's right, but it's a fascinating, uh, fascinating concept. He he makes an interesting case for it. Yeah. Okay, and as promised, we do a little break here, and we will hear more music, and um, it will be classical music, as I promised, right? So it will be on Pluto. Well, surprise, surprise. You all know Gustav Holtz, the planet. Yes, you do. I'm sure you have heard that music partly, and it's used as film music. It's a very famous orchestral piece um, with chorus as well. And But at the time when Gustav Holst um, had composed his work, 
Well, there was no Pluto around yet. Well, Pluto had not yet been discovered, right? So there is no Pluto in Gustav Holst's planets, I'm afraid. So somebody else um, took, uh, took the adventure to compose Pluto with the title Pluto the Renewer and um, made a kind of add-on, you would call that today, to Gustav Holst's planets. It's not performed with that piece. It's performed separately and it is really very nice and I think that is exactly the piece we needed here today for this little break. Um, well, little, the piece is about six and a half minutes long, but you hopefully will enjoy it. And of course, I still owe you the name of the composer. It's Colin Matthews, very well-known British composer, contemporary British composer. He wrote a piece in 2000, and it's now sometimes also played in conjuncture in concert with Gustav Holt's Planets. A really, really wonderful piece by Colin Matthews. Right, um, that's so much about the piece before the second part of the interview, because immediately after Colin Matthews' Pluto, the Renewer, we will return back to John Michael Greer. And at the end of the interview, at the end of an additional 38 minutes, so it's also a bit longer here today, um, we will have an 11-minute musical piece. Well, looking forward to who will listen to it. Yes, please do. And that one is by Gustav Holst. And it is called Ode to Death. And um, well, I chose it because some people say if Gustav Holst had known that um, Pluto is out there, he would have dedicated that piece to Pluto himself. Well, we all don't know, we will never will know, but um, it's a nice saying. And uh, well, I just thought it's a right fit. So long music here today. First, um, Colin Matthews' edition to Gustav Holst's The Planets, Pluto the Renewer. Then we will go back to listen to the second part of John Michael Greer's interview. And after the interview, it will be Ode to Death by Gustav Holst. Um, and I hope you enjoy this a bit more extensive and um, deep music also with all that is going on in the world. I think we needed that. Enjoy.
Well, if we now delve into into um, sacred geometry as such, as an mm-hmm. as an art or as a as mm-hmm. a practice, let's go there. Mm-hmm. If I had to ask you, well, I do now. <laughs> um, <laughs> what is sacred geometry? How would you explain to a newbie, to somebody who is just started mm-hmm. into the into the world of of occultism, esoteric, Western esoteric mm-hmm. tradition? How would you explain to that person what exactly is sacred geometry? Okay, sacred geometry is two things. First, it is a branch of symbolism, the use of geometrical shapes and geometrical relationships as a, as a conveyor of symbolic meaning. There's mm-hmm. lots of different kinds of symbolism we have in, in occult traditions. There's number symbolism, there's color symbolism, there's animal symbolism, there's this and that and the other symbolism. But there is the, 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 the symbolism of, of pure geometrical shapes is a very important branch mm-hmm. of occult symbolism and sacred geometry is what you call the art and, the, the art and practice of working with them. Sacred geometry is also a meditative discipline. And so by learning to create these geometrical patterns, meditate on them, meditate on the relationships with one another, how one unfolds from another, this is a system of meditative training and of, of, of initiation. And that's, mm-hmm. that's how Pythagoras used it, and that's how it has been used ever since. This is, the, you know, when Dion Fortune in one of her books talks about how, it's, how the point of this is to train your mind and not to inform it, that's <laughs> the point of sacred geometry. You're mm-hmm. training your mind to move in, move along with patterns of natural unfolding. And it's an extremely good, extremely useful set of training. So that's how I would describe sacred geometry to a beginner. Mm-hmm. Is it also a help to improve on visualization? It can be. You can certainly mm-hmm. use it that way. Mm-hmm. Um, certainly, if you make the ha- if you, <laughs> you make the habit of doing a geometrical construction and then imagine it hanging hanging before you in glowing lines, yeah, you can exercise your imaginative faculties and your visualization faculties very well that way. Right, right, because it follows some rules which help you oh, to yeah. frame your visualization in a mm-hmm. in a certain sense, exactly. right? Yeah, oh, yeah. right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, those two books. Um, well, it's actually more than books. The, there are two books that I think one has been a re-edition of a previous work of you, right? And the oh, other one yeah. is, is is a new one, uh, but they go the other of one's brand new, perfectly the, well together. There's there's a reason for that. 
Um, the original Sacred Geometry Oracle, a publisher who I shall not name at the moment, mm-hmm. um, bought the thing and then decided, then had a, well, let's be unkind, call it a brain fart. Mm-hmm. Uh, somebody had been to see the movie The Matrix. And here I was doing this thing for to appeal to sacred geometers, to people who are into earth mysteries, druids, that kind of stuff. And right. the little person goes, oh, I know, we can do it as like radioactive glowing lines and rotting metal and crumbling concrete and urban ugliness. And when I said, Mm -hmm. this is a really bad idea, do not do this, your people will not like it. I I got a very, very nasty response. (laughs) I got to basically shut up, shut up, we know what we're doing. (laughs) So it came out and it bombed. (laughs) And it took me a long time to get the rights back because they were rather, I think they were sulking because I, I was right and they were wrong. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, <laughs> but, um, but so the public, finally the publisher that will not be named relinquished the rights to me and some other things happened and I found a proper publisher. Now, the thing that made this especially irritating back in the day is that I had intended the sacred geometry oral to be the keystone for a whole system of spiritual practice unfolding from it. I had drawn up all kinds of details and worked out outlines and was prepared to do a whole series of books. And then they proceeded to do a version of the cards that would not work. I mean, Mm -hmm. beyond the mere fact that they're just butt ugly. So, so that all went onto the shelf. And then after I found um, the present publisher who is much more reasonable and like listens to authors instead of telling them, shut up, we know what we're doing. Mm -hmm. Um, As soon as um, we had worked through the details and the sacred geometry oracle was in process, I was going, oh, cool. Would you be interested in the other books in the series? And the other publisher said, "Why, yes." So um, we had we had an, some enthusiastic conversations, and um, so the first book in the in the system of training, as such, the way of the golden section, duly came forth, and that's now that that's now in print. Exactly. Um, the second yeah. ins- the second instructional volume, the way of the four elements, which is this. Think of the way of the golden section as the first degree. The way of the four elements is the second. And then there okay. will be a third. Mm-hmm. And there's also, um, this will be out later this year, there is a book called um, The Occult Philosophy Workbook, which is the first of a series of workbooks of basically meditation fodder and stuff to study and stuff to learn and, and do certain exercises with that mm-hmm. also tie into the same thing. And so the whole, it's, I, it's going to be at least seven books in all. It may be more depending on what people are willing to put up with. Mm-hmm. But there are seven <laughs> books I have in mind so far. Um, the Sacred Geometry Oracle, the three instructional books, the um, th- uh, the Occult Philosophy Workbook, the Astrology Workbook, and the Sacred Geometry Workbook. And anyone who goes through those is going to have a very, very solid grounding in old-fashioned, as in, say, 1880s through 1920s, old-fashioned occult study, the meditation ritual, divination, sacred geometry, astronomy. I'll probably manage to work in some um, arithmology and music in there, too, and just the whole set of Pythagorean sciences. Absolutely. It should be a lot of fun. Um, I, I would I would uh, like to go a little bit more in-depth in a minute in, in those two sure. works that I have here in front of me and that are already mm-hmm. available. Um, mm-hmm. 
but um, you just said something that I have to respond to. You said it's mm-hmm. an old-fashioned 1880s to 1920s way of approaching things, but but I very strongly feel it is that, yes, um, but it is seen through the eyes of the 21st century and well, in a language <laughs> and, yes, and in a language and um, um, mm-hmm. approach that we need for our times, right? Well, I, I, I hope so. The, the thing that I noticed, the thing that I, I that became painfully clear to me when after I because when I when I was first getting into occultism, I was think of the geeky young man um, alone in a cramped little apartment studying strange books and doing practices and <laughs> rarely see and rarely if ever seeing another human being who was engaged in the same thing. That was me. Mm-hmm. So after I became published, I ended up getting in contact with um, other people in the occult community. And there were some people who were really who were really capable, some people who had learned a lot. There were some exceedingly talented people, a couple of them that are becoming teachers of mine. But mm-hmm. by and large, the basic level of um, of occult understanding and of technical competence in things like ritual and so on, divination and so on, would have been a horrible embarrassment to any self-respecting theosophist from the 19, you say the 19 teens. Okay. Yeah, yeah. The level of competence had just gone through the floor. And one of the reasons that I, that I wanted to do this sort of program of systematic training is in the hopes of remedying that so we can finally get some competent, some functioning occultists again who, who, you know, who can magic their way out of a wet paper bag. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, I, I think you're absolutely right. I mean, you cannot play an instrument without having a technique. You know, it's not just because you like yeah. to hear the instrument that you can play it. Yeah, and and so many people, we have, this is another, this is actually another, another, aspect of Pluto's influence. This notion that, no, you should just get rid of all that, all that, you know, um, old dusty fuddy duddy stuff about technique and practices and doing scales and just express yourself. Yeah. That produces dreadfully bad music. It produces dreadfully bad literature and art. Yeah, art, um, exactly. Everybody art. can be and a writer. No, they everyone, can't. Everyone, no, they can't. Well, sure. <laughs> Everybody can fill, can fill pages with words. Yes. But probably. no, the, the, the whole, the, there was a book once. I do not remember who wrote it. It was a book of poetry. It was titled First Thought, Best Thought. And it was one of the worst books of poetry I think I've ever read. <laughs> because, yeah, this person had just jotted down whatever came into their head. And it was, it was you know, when it wasn't a collection of cliches flying in close formation, it was just either dull or absurd. Mm-hmm. No, these things need technique. If you want to be any of good course. at an instrument, you've got to play the instrument. If you want Absolutely. to be getting any good at astrology you know you need to study lots of charts and you need to make predictions and then if they fail and they will a lot early on you need to say oh i wonder what i did wrong rather than trying to scurry around like a cat trying to cover up a linoleum floor or something Uh, and this is very simple and in the same way you know you have you have all these people who who love to proclaim themselves as grand exalted blah 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 their lives are smoking craters. They, you know, they, they obviously can't make change in accordance with will unless they really, unless their will is really rather odd. And yet they're parading around as, as big name occultists. And I, I think back to the days when, 
when occult teachers were expected to like have function have, have functional lives. And I'm just going, oh man, we have a lot of ground to catch up to on. Catch up, absolutely. And well, those books will certainly help with that. Let's go a bit into the the Oracle, because of mm -hmm. course uh, this comes with 33 cards and mm -hmm. um I was, as a Mason, of course, especially, I was puzzled by the fact that it's 33 and <laughs> that number 33 also turns up in, in the new book, In the Way of the Golden Section. Oh, um, it does. Um, tell us about, the, about 33 and, by consequence, 66 and 99, I guess. Well, I don't actually get much into the 66 and 99. Um, <laughs> there's a range of things, nor, nor into the, I mean, this, I, I, I'm, not, I'm not a Memphis and Mizraim initiate, so yeah, 99 okay. is, is, is not. <laughs> Me neither, but I, I was, you got my point, exactly. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. But, but in, terms of, in terms of 33, uh, partly, um, I, I'm a member of the Scottish Rite here in the United mm -hmm. States, uh, and so, which is the, the most famous of the 33-degree systems. Yeah. Um, I have very closely read um, the Albert Pike's uh, Morals and Dogments and a lot of other Scottish Rite material. And th the 33, the symbolism of 33 has been, I think, unfairly neglected in some ways. There's a, you have a lot of focus on 32 because of the Kabbalistic dimensions. Mm -hmm. Of course, if you remember that you have 10 spheres and 22 paths and Doth, exactly. which is the not quite a sphere in the middle, that gives you 33. Mm -hmm. Gosh. Um, does that mesh with anything in the Scottish Rite? I'm sure I could uh, not tell you. Uh, well. <laughs> um, but within within the system of of the golden the the, the fellow, golden section fellowship, this this um, you know mm -hmm. tradition that I'm generating here, mm -hmm. um, thirty three yes, thirty three is important. Um, it is specifically broken into three times eleven. Now eleven has a very mixed reputation in right. numerology and in, for example, Kabbalah, there are some traditions that treat it as a number of evil. And there are others that treat it as a number, a, a potentially chancy number, but a number of great power. In, in ordinary numerology, for example, when you're, if a name adds up to 11, you've got a situation where somebody can make something remarkable of themselves if they make the effort. 11 mm -hmm. in, the, in, in, in classic numerology is the number of the, minute, of the mage. Of the initiates, yes, uh, where it breaks out of the ordinary. Yes, exactly. Yes, exactly. Yeah, mm -hmm. It's it's that which breaks through, and it's it's a very there, there's a there's a bit of a Plutonian energy there, but even so, it's relevant. And so, in in specifically in the in the sacred geometry oracle and in the way of the golden section, um, eleven is one plus three plus seven, the unity plus the three principles plus seven factors, which we can associate with the planets or with various other things. Mm -hmm. And so um, you'll be looking, if, if you glance at the cover of, of either of the books, you'll notice the pattern of the circle square yes. triangle. Yes. And there are a total of 11 intersection of, intersections of lines in that diagram, mm -hmm. which correspond to each of these in a way that's explained in there. It's all, and the symbolism is worked out to, some, to, to a fairly complex degree. And, fu but, and so, funny enough, that, that symbol, which is on the book, is card number 32, right? Yes, it is. <laughs> <laughs> it is indeed. Um, but, but yeah, so, um, so basically the, the, the sacred geometry oracle is, is divided into three, three sections, three circles. We could call them suits if you like, um, of 11 cards each. And there's a first one that is that deals with with basic, in a certain sense, with basic stable um, material realities. 
Mm-hmm. There's a second one that deals with change and flow and transformation. And there's the third that resolves all these changes and transformations into unity. They correspond respectively with the square roots of two, no, square roots of three, two, and five. Okay. Um, which are three basic ge- principles of sacred geometry, three irrational factors that are constantly present in geometrical constructions. And there's lots of other things. You can relate them to the the grand magical arcanum that Elphas Levy talks about. You right. can relate to them. There, there's, there's a lot of stuff woven in there. I will be... I will be um, Sketching out some of that in the books ahead, and I'll be leaving a bunch of the rest of it for other people to find themselves because, you know, a, a, a proper occult training program does not spoon feed. Absolutely. No, <laughs> you, exactly. you need to exactly. tackle this and learn it yourself. Oh, yes, definitely. So, so, so how do you suggest or um, initiate people to initiate this good word for that? Because initiation, mm-hmm. in fact, is to give a beginning and you have to walk yeah. the path yourself right and mm-hmm. um, how do you initiate people your readers the people who buy the oracle and um, to use the oracle what what is its aim what do you use this card set for this oracle set for? okay well like first of all there's there's a sort of there's sort of introductory level like any divinatory oracle you can use it to do readings you can use it to you know to do anything down to ordinary, ordinary common or garden variety fortune telling it's mm-hmm. not that different from there there's lots of there are lots of um sets of oracle cards out there right now um whether you want to get a lenormand deck which has what 36 cards i think i think or yeah. there yeah, there are various. There, there are a lot of decks out there. There are, you know, you can get rune twenty-four runes or, or what have you, twenty-five own cards. So on, on, on the basic level, you can use it as a plain old ordinary divination deck, mm-hmm. and it actually works very well for that. One of the things that I tried to do in the course of, of um, devising, developing it, or originally creating it, and then adapting it with from experience, is making sure that it gives straightforward readings. You. Mm-hmm a three-card reading or something is da-da-da-da-da-da. Oh, that's the answer. Right. And because you know, that's, we, we do divination because we want to know something. And sure. so, so you can approach it on that level. You can approach it purely on the level of a divination deck. Mm-hmm. You can then go beyond that to use each of the cards as an emblem for meditation, as a thing to, as a thing to meditate on. Right. You can go a step further by actually doing each of the geometrical constructions shown on the card. Here we have the pentagram. Okay, how do you draw an equilateral pentagram? You know, the instructions are given in, in the book that comes in with the book, card. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, you mm-hmm. know, mm-hmm. you take your paper, take your straight edge, your compasses, and your pen. You know, <laughs> fire it up, and away we go. Absolutely. And to to and, me personally, that's a very important part of sacred geometry in general. To actually sit down. I'm mm-hmm. not the. I am not a good painter. My, I always said when my kids were five years old, they their drawings are are much more devised than mine. But but um sacred geometry kind of brings me into into line mm-hmm. with my hands and my brain. Mm-hmm. And so for occult training this is something very oh, important yeah. to me. Yeah. Oh, it's absolutely crucial. Um, Dion Fortune and some of the other English occultists used to really stress the fact you've got to do something with your hands in the mm-hmm. course of occult training. You've got mm-hmm. to learn develop even if you're naturally clumsy, as I am, um, mm. you need to do something that will develop that sort of linkage between mind and hand, because yeah. it's very important for learning to express magical energy. Yeah. And so, yeah, yeah, sacred geometry is a very good way to do that. Mm-hmm. 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 Um, what, what else is sacred geometry for you? Uh, 
a language of esoteric tradition? Is it something that um, you can use to explain big parts of, say, also um, ceremonial magic, uh, oh, yeah. other paths? Uh, oh, good um, heavens, yes. Yeah. So, so how do you do that? Okay. Well, for example, why do we trace pentagrams? I mean, your, your common or garden variety um, ceremonial magician these days is going to be tracing pentagrams in the four directions. It's the most <laughs> exactly. common. Okay, why a pentagram? Mm -hmm. You can ask your, your common or garden variety ceremonial magician that, and they'll probably flounder around and maybe come up with something about Mars or Gabor or something like that. But there's actually a very straightforward reason to it. And if you know sacred geometry, you know the reason. The pentagram is entirely based on the golden section. Right. Every one of its divisions is in golden section proportion with one of the with at least one of the others. Mm -hmm. And so what you got here, since the golden section is the geometrical symbol of harmony, um, what you, you need to you are imposing harmony. You are establishing harmony in the space in a geometrical symbolic way. Every time yeah. you trace a pentagram. And that's why it's so important so, to do it properly, to do it in the really nice delicate yeah. way and not just somehow you know yeah don't just don't just wave don't just wave your arm around going you know exactly Ooga. exactly um yeah do it do it as exactly as possible i have one of my teachers um used to have me literally draw the thing out on the wall you know a big piece mm -hmm. of paper that could be taped to the wall and practice it until i got it right mm -hmm. now mm -hmm. that is also of course very good for will training which is an essential in say in any kind of ceremonial magic but it also really helped my form in mm -hmm. in practicing the in practicing the ritual mm -hmm. um so yeah there's that you can they you could actually weave a lot into the language of sacred geometry. There's a, a book by George Winslow Plummer, who was an American Rosicrucian of the early 20th century, mm -hmm. um, called Rosicrucian Symbolism. And right. yeah, exactly. yeah, yeah. You, you, you may be familiar with it. And he says, here, you know, wherein the novice will learn the principles of constructive symbolism and a few other things. It's <laughs> 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 a typical snide sort of Rosicrucian sense of humor. Um, and, and in fact, he was passing on some very important teachings um, from, oh, I'm not going to remember the, the name of the guy, um, German Rosicrucian from the 19th century who had this system of um, vibrating letters and building up sort of structures within the body, uh, um, symbolic um, structures. Uh, Kerner, uh, I think, was name, possibly. Carl uh, uh, Kellner, yeah. you mean? Carl yeah. Kellner? No, 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 not yeah. Carl. No, not Carl Kellner. This was before him. This was before his time. Okay. okay. Um, I, uh, no, I don't know what you mean. Mm. I'll look it up at some point. I, I actually didn't. I, 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 went, I got to him the other way. I, I had been, I'd done a lot of study of this book by Plummer and then uh -huh. um, happened to run across a reference on a Rosicrucian website to, that said, yeah, and Plummer's book is actually gives a really remarkably detailed account of this. It's all the funnier because the people who run that website um, had been snarking about George Winslow Plummer and how his, his <laughs> courses and books are really boring. And then it turned out they had to, to through gritted teeth to admit that, well, actually, this one's pretty good. <laughs> but yeah, so there's there, there is this there, there's this tradition of sort of internally constructing the temple using um, ge geometry and letters, Hebrew or otherwise, mm -hmm. inside the body. It's a meditative system. And so uh, George Winslow Plummer was communicating that. He was communicating quite a bit else, else also. And if you unpack the thing symbolically, you find you have this a very large amount of practical occult knowledge.
knowledge that he's expressing by means of a simple series of geometrical shapes. So yeah, 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 absolutely. Um, there is, of course, when you go on one of those big books websites, I don't give any names now, but and you type in sacred geometry, you'll find all kinds of things, right? Um, oh dear. Yes, exactly. Um, <laughs> There are two particular things that I would like you to ask about because I wonder what your take is on them. Um, uh -huh. And <laughs> you're getting wary. <laughs> um, one is that that way of that's not really a thing. It's a way of explaining the story of the creation of the of the of matter mm -hmm. in a way of, of the world, the story of creation according to sacred geometry. That's even the title mm -hmm. of a book like that, right? Which mm -hmm. um, has had quite an, a big success. Um, uh, mm -hmm. Also published by one of your editors, by the way. Um, so, so um, what's your take on that? In, in in what sense is this idealistic view that? that the thought creates matter linked to sacred geometry. Mm -hmm. Well, if you want to treat it as a myth, as a creation story, I think mm -hmm. it's great. Mm -hmm. um, I, one of the things to keep in mind is that no two creation stories say the same thing. And so one of the great traps of sacred geometry is thinking that the, the, force, the forces that created the cosmos were you know, kind of... Um, studied a geometry textbook before, before they did it. Um, mm -hmm. Geometry is our human <laughs> attempt <laughs> to imitate this, the, the immense complexity and power and grace of the cosmos. It's mm -hmm. as close as we can get. Mm -hmm. And so as long as they don't take themselves too seriously, such these things are actually pretty useful. And if you, if you can use them, again, to train your mind the way, the way Dion Fortune used for various images in, in the Cosmic Doctrine, for example, mm -hmm. if you can use the, the story of creation according to sacred geometry to, to teach your mind to follow certain patterns and to give the world a certain, a certain structure within your consciousness, um, that's a very good thing. But if you start getting into arguments as to whether this or that version is the true version of how sacred geometry created the universe, well, we've already seen way too much of that over the last 2,000 years. Absolutely. So yeah. So if I get you right, do you mean sacred geometry can be an explanation of how those very complicated things happen? Um, but, but it's a very human explanation, meaning yes. it's not actually true. It's just as close as we can get. Exactly. Um, it is not a creation yeah. myth as being the active creator, but it's rather an explanation of what the creation did, right? Yeah. And it's also very much an explanation of how human beings can think about creation. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, the, the thing that I like to, the thing I like to say to remind people, the human brain is six inches long. The universe is however many hundred godzillion light years across. <laughs> One of these cannot understand the other. <laughs> <laughs> absolutely. Just, okay. try, just, just try to create a straight line through the universe and you'll see where it yeah, goes. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> or just try to create a straight line. I mean, yeah. the, fact, the fact is, you know, there is no perfect circle. We cannot create a perfect circle. It can't, you know, the, yeah. the cosmos does it all the time. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. We're right, nothing right. good. We right. are, we are very early in the, in the process of our spiritual evolution and just need to get 
a little less and uh, less annoyingly hubristic about it all. But go on. Yeah. That was that was one of the things you saw. One of the things. The, the second second thing I wanted to ask you about uh, is an object uh, that often turns up in sacred geometry explanations, books, etc., um, which is a thing apart almost for me. That's the flower of life. Right, oh the famous. Yes. <laughs> okay, got you. Yeah, um, I figured that Drun, I figured that Drunvalo Melchizedek was going to come. Well, him, but not only him. You know, it's not only mm -hmm. him. It's it's uh, all over the place. But of course, he, oh, he, yeah. he made a big story of that. But where does that come from? I mean, the symbol as such, and uh, what is your take on it? I'm, I'm pretty sure that he made it up. <laughs> and mm -hmm. the thing is, there is, if you think there is one key to sacred geometry, you don't understand sacred geometry. The, um, the flower of life is, it's a fairly simple development of the square root of three, the, mm -hmm. vesica, the vesica piscis geometry. Exactly. And you can use it. It has been used um, in the, what, what was called the atriangulum form of, of sacred architecture mm -hmm. um, that was used as a ground plan and as a framework for for laying a very simple framework for laying out um, the elevation of buildings although there yeah. were other and far more elegant ways of doing it but it, it's it's not all that mm -hmm. in a bag of chips as my English friends like to say mm -hmm. um, it's simply it's a diagram Yeah. It's a potentially interesting and useful diagram in some uses. It can be overused. And there again, there is no one key to sacred geometry because sacred geometry isn't that simplistic. Yes. Exactly. You have to keep in mind you've got, you know, you, you have this whole series of irrational proportions that actually provide the underlying structure of sacred geometry. And none of them are commensurable with any of the others. You have pi, you have, you know, the ratio between a circle and its diameter. You have mm -hmm. the square root of two ratio, you have the square root of three ratio, you have the square root of five ratio, and the golden section. And those two actually are commensurable. That must have caused a great deal of, of <laughs> you know, amazement and, and, and astonishment in Pythagorean circles when they, when they found out you can actually get there. And yeah. so, but you, the fact that these things are incommensurable is actually central to the experience of sacred geometry. It is not a simplistic system. It does, it has no one root. It has no one basis. It has no one key. Mm -hmm. And it's the interplay between these things. That's actually true of all of the old Pythagorean sciences. Um, in music, the way the, the fact that a sequence of octaves and a sequence of, of fifths always gets out of step. Yeah, here's another yeah. example of yeah. incommensurability yeah. yeah. in yeah. in astrology. The fact that the sun and the moon they have there's no common factor in their in their orbits, so that the year is never going to come out. In any no number of years will ever come out to be an exact even number of months, mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. so on. Incommensurability is a central teaching, and so you have to grasp and accept that. And that means that the circle that there there is no key to sacred geometry. I, now. Granted, part of the problem that I have with, with that whole end of the sacred geometry thing is the frequency with which people who are into it start talking about evil space lizards and yeah. uh, conspiracies. <laughs> and, you know, we'd have everything we want uh, delivered to us tomorrow, if not for these bad people over there. And I'm just going, oh, please, come on. Yeah, yeah, But yeah. That's yeah. not what sacred geometry is about. Okay, if you want, yeah. if you want to get into conspiracy culture, that's fine. Whatever floats your boat. 
but please don't drag that into sacred geometry. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I, I wasn't. I was, of course. You, you know me now. I was asking mm -hmm. that because um, I, I hear you on that, and I share completely your opinion. But it seemed important to me to to point it out no, that a, you are. It's, it's perfectly, it's perfectly so well. reasonable to ask. Yeah, it's perfectly reasonable to ask. But among other things, I, I people do ask that quite a bit. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Sure, sure, because it's so much around, you know. And, mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah, yeah, and you know, absolutely. it's a pretty, it's a pretty pattern. If you want a piece of pretty jewelry to hang around your oh, neck, and you want to do this, yeah, sure. the, the flower of life, do not let me stop you. No, of course, of course. <laughs> you know, yeah. Hey, you know, if you feel you need more of that square root of three vibration in your life, that's one way to do it. Think of it as a talisman. Right. Um, right. Mm -hmm. One of those things. <laughs> Uh, but um, exactly, but it, it leave it where, what to what it is, and then don't mm -hmm. make something out of it that it is not. Absolutely. <laughs> um, just returning for well, we are almost out of time already, uh, John Michael. That's uh, <laughs> that was amazing how time flies with you. And um, just to go back uh, for a few moments still to that to that book, The Way of the Golden Section, that new book of mm -hmm. yours, right? And mm -hmm. um, what I find fascinating, you think it's about, well, it is about sacred geometry, but then you read chapter names like Aikido or Tai Chi <laughs> or opening <laughs> ceremonies and how you, how you close the ceremony and to, how do you do lodge work. Um, mm -hmm. So, well, yeah, uh, it's, why? It's a, it's a, <laughs> why? No, it's a system of <laughs> occult training. It's not just sacred geometry. It takes sacred mm -hmm. geometry exactly. as its basic symbolic alphabet, but it is, yeah. a, yeah. it is intended to be a complete system of, of occult training, which means you have a basic ritual practice, the sphere of protection. You have daily meditation. You have divination using the sacred geometry oracle. You have a series of other practices. The reference to Aikido and so on is, I reckon, you know, you're, it's recommended, not required, but recommended that you take up some kind of movement art as part of your training, because one of the things I've noticed about Western occultists is that too few of them get their bodies involved in the process. Absolutely. Absolutely. And so this is, this is an attempt to set up a framework for personal training that occultists, people interested in the occult can use to, to ground their own training. It's entirely set up for self for self um, guided work and self initiation. There are too many little, you know, podunk empires out there of people saying, you have to pay me lots of money and I will make you an occultist. And it's usually the results are usually stuff you could find with about 20 minutes of Internet searching. So what yeah. I've tried to do yeah. is sort of gather everything together and say, here, you know, buy this book <laughs> and, you know, do, do, yeah. do buy the book, please. And then here are some uh, other books yes. that go with it. And if you want exactly. to use this system, here it is. You don't have yeah, to, yeah. you know, bow down yeah. to a statue of me or a giant golden penis or whatever. You know, <laughs> <laughs> I wish I was joking. We don't have to get into where that's from. Um, <laughs> Sorry, but that makes me laugh. Yeah. <laughs> yes, indeed it should. <laughs> but, but yeah, um, you, but you, people don't have to get into that. Here is, here is the toolkit. Now go, now go have fun. Definitely, um, and, and, yeah, and I'm so, glad you're making that point because that was the point of my question. Because uh, the, the, this is not just about sacred geometry; it is no. much more. It is it's really for people who seriously now in 2022 want to do serious um, uh, esoteric work and yeah, occult work. Want to right? want to get some serious esoteric occult training, and yeah. that's and and it's a, one, one thing is I think 
a lot of people really did want that. Even back, you know, when we had all of the um, high, high priestess kiss my foot types running around monopolizing the situation. And, you know, a lot of people really want something meaningful in their lives, something that connects them to the spiritual realms, something that doesn't involve groveling before some authority figure or other, but just, you know, what can I do? What are the, what can I study? What can I practice? And I, I get, maybe, maybe they just, they, they just show up in my, on my blogs a lot, but I, I hear from them quite often. And so this is one of several attempts I'm making to make sure they've got the tools they need. You don't need to join an organization. You don't need to fork over a lot of money. Yeah. You don't need to, you know, to cower before some, some, you know, two bit uh, would, you know, grand exalted panjandrum. Um, here are some practices. Go exactly. do them. So, so you're <laughs> not really going that simple. You're not going to create the holy order of JMG, but you're going, well, to, going to there, there produce been, more manuals for us, right? There have been <laughs> several attempts to generate such a thing, and I've fortunately been able to head them off each time. Yeah, I, um, I think I right. find yeah. I find nothing more boring in the world than people, you know, doing the whole gravel adulate. Oh, JMG. There's that great moment in Monty Python and the Holy Grail where King, where King Arthur expresses my feelings perfectly, where he's going, shut up, shut up. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, that, that's a good one. That's a good one to 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 close that chapter in a way. <laughs> yes, yes, in the noble words of King Arthur. Yes. Exactly, uh, John Michael JMG, as we call you. Um, you mentioned those those manual series that are going to to, to come mm -hmm. up in the future. You mentioned two books. Two think I was books mm -hmm. on astrology mm -hmm. that you're working at, and I hardly uh, dare ask you what's your next projects because you kind of told us already. <laughs> but maybe okay. you still want the, to say something the, about the, it. No, the the current next project, the one that the one that's at the top of the at the top of the heap right now that that I'm so that I'm working on at the moment mm -hmm. is a book on. Um, it's, an, it's an astrology book. It is focusing on daily transits across your your natal chart. Okay. Um, it's a very simple process each day to look at what's going on, where the moon is relative to your natal chart and so on. Mm -hmm. And um, I have no idea why it has dropped out of use the way it did. The last book I've been able to find on it was like 19, published in like 1942. Right. And yet I use it all the time. I use mm -hmm. not the book, but the technique. I mean, mm -hmm. I'm always... Um, looking at the looking, okay, when is you know when when is something going to be in a good aspect to my natal Mercury? That's when I'm going to send off this proposal for a manuscript. Mm -hmm. um, you know, oh, some you know Saturn is afflicting this. I think I'm going to postpone that event until that's passed, and it works. It's an extremely effective way. So the the working title of the book is Perfect Timing. Right, and so that's mo that's actually mostly done. But I have some tables to finish, and so on, and then that will be going to the publisher. Um, after that, I'm not perfectly sure. I have several things in mind, and we'll see. Okay. Well, in a way, I would say then this interview here today was perfect timing, right? <laughs> I, I would. I would certainly not. I would certainly not disagree. <laughs> well, thank you again so much for your time. It was, mm -hmm. as as previously, always a pleasure to talk to you. And, thank you for um, having me on. I always, I always enjoy it. Absolutely. No, it's, it's, it's not just having a pleasure to talk to you and chat with you, but we learn so much every time and it's, it's, just, it's just fun to talk to you. Uh, I'm and, glad uh, to hear that. Uh, thank you. And um, 
Well, we'll be we'll be in touch again, I'm sure. And, I, I look uh, forward to it. Yeah, and thank you for that. And um, well, stay healthy and safe, and mm -hmm. uh, have a good time.
Salute to Death by British composer Gustav Holst, who you certainly know from his work, The Planets. And a uh, wonderful piece. Uh, some people say it would have been his edition for Pluto if he had known that Pluto was out there. Well, he was not aware when he died because Pluto was discovered only a few decades later. Right, and this is the end of episode three. It was a bit longer than usual, longer with music, longer with my chatting, and longer also the interview a little bit. So I hope you enjoyed it, and um, uh, I hope you will be back next week for episode four. But first, let me thank thank John Michael Greer for being our guest here today. And uh, it was lovely, really, to have him. And as you heard, he will most probably be back at some point not too far in the future he's such a prolific writer it is amazing and it's always great to read him and to talk to him and um, well thank you all also for coming and listening to this it's great to have you here every week and to see an increasing number of you coming back each week that's all perfect and wonderful so let's hope that we are all back here next week on episode four, and I have to tell you who will be our guest next week. Well, recently, Inner Traditions published a book called uh, Machine Intelligence, and its author, Luke Lafitte from Texas, he will be with us here next week in a very, very interesting and special interview about machine intelligence and its influence on esoteric thought. Don't tell you more for the moment. Come back and listen. It'll be fun, I promise. Okay, so for the remainder of this week, stay safe, stay healthy, and um, take care. Stay tuned. Hear you soon. Mm -hmm.